You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Thanks so much for listening. Now, on to the message. It's uh, good to be with you this morning. My name is Spencer. I'm the pastor here. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be reading from John chapter 10 today. And this is a part four of a series called Jesus in the Present Tense, where we are exploring ways that Jesus can change our lives today. That's why we're calling it this series, um, Jesus in the Present Tense, because Jesus can change our lives uh, today. We're looking in this series at seven things that Jesus said about himself. And these are not abstract theological principles. These are seven practical promises of how Jesus can change our lives. And so we're looking at each of these um, as we go through, uh, through this series for seven, uh, seven weeks. Uh, seven times that we see in the Gospel of John, Jesus has this way of speaking about himself. It follows a similar pattern, and the pattern goes like this, where Jesus will say, I am, and then he fills in the blank with whatever he is, just a, a picture of what this looks like. I am the bread of life. I am the, the light of the world. Um, I am the gate. We see these different things that Jesus says about himself. And as we read this in English, we miss something that the original hearers of this would have heard because uh, the Bible wasn't originally written in, in English. The New Testament was written in Greek. And in the Greek of the original New Testament, when Jesus says, I am, the Greek words there are, are ego ami, which is fascinating because ego and ami both mean I am. So it's as if Jesus is saying, I am, I am. Like really trying to like catch your attention there. It's like this redundancy there. Um, I am, I am. And, and, he's, and he's doing this on, on purpose. Like each time he says this ego of me, I am, I am, it's, it's kind of like a <clears throat> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Do you hear what I'm saying here? This is a, a bigger deal because he's trying to draw us to this tradition that is in the Old Testament of the name of God. Uh, the name of God as it's revealed to Moses on the burning bush on the mountain when he goes to, is called to free the people of Israel. Uh, Moses approaches the burning bush and hears God speaking out of the burning bush and, and he asks this, this voice that's speaking out of the bush, who should I say is sending me to the Pharaoh and to the Israelites? And here's what God says back to Moses, Exodus chapter three, verse 14. He says, I am who I am. Like that's the name of God. I am who I am. Uh, this is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. The name of God. I am who I am. Sometimes you, you'll hear that pronounced in the Hebrew as Yahweh. The Latin version of that same word is Jehovah. In case you're wondering what that word meant, it, it means the name of God. I am who I am. And so God shows up and he says, here's my name. I, I am. God just like is. He always has been. He always will be. God, God is existence. God is reality. God is truth. This is who, who God is. And this is what he reveals himself to Moses. So when Jesus shows up these seven times in John and he says, Ego and me, I am, I am. Uh, he's, he's drawing us to this, this picture of, of what God is like. And it's like he's saying to, to us, hey, this, this God who, who just is, let me show you what he's like. Let me show you what he can do. And let me show you the way that he can change your life. And so each week we're looking at different promises Jesus makes about who he is and what it is that God can do in your life. And so last week and this week, these two go hand in hand and really we could have read them together because they're just so closely related. Last week we looked at the promise was I am the gate. We saw that twice in John chapter 10. Uh, and Jesus would say that I am the gate. And, and this week's uh, I am also goes just right along with this. It's built off the same metaphor. So last week when Jesus says he's the gate, he, he's referencing this uh, shepherding metaphor that we see in John chapter 10, which is where we're going to pick up reading today as well as John chapter 10. And in uh, the shepherding metaphor that Jesus gives us, we looked at last week, is that when he says he is the gate, what he's referencing there is something that, again, to modern ears, we lose what the original hearers would have heard. Because in Jesus' day, when he says he is the gate, he's 
referencing how shepherds practiced because shepherding in those days was not a nine to five, 40 hour a week job, two weeks vacation, 401k and health benefits. It wasn't like that at all. Shepherding was like an always kind of job. You were always on the clock and you never left. This is just where you lived. And so at nighttime, these shepherds would bring the sheep into these pens. And, and as they bring them into the pens for, for protection during the nighttime, the shepherd himself, after the sheep were, were in the pen, he would sit down at the entrance to the pen and the shepherd would become the gate. The shepherd would sleep at the gate. He would become the barrier to the predators or the robbers who might come and try to harm the sheep. The, the shepherd himself was the, was the access point for in the morning, the, the sheep would come through the shepherd in order to be led to safe pasture and to water. And so what you see in this promise where Jesus says, I am the gate, you see that Jesus is the, the access point to protection and providence, that he protects us, he provides for us what we need, and, and this is the promise that we have. And so John chapter 10, where we ended last week, we ended with this incredible promise, John 10, 10, and I encourage you, if you're into Bible memorization, you should memorize this verse, and if you're not into Bible memorization, you, you should be, and so you should memorize this verse. So John 10, 10, we should memorize this verse. It's just an incredible promise. Jesus says this, he says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy, I have come, they may have life and have it to the full, or sometimes translated as overflowing or abundant, that this is the promise that Jesus has, that, that through him, he is the access point to an overflowing, abundant kind of life. And so we looked at three principles with John 10, 10, because this is where we're going to start from today as well. John 10, 10, three principles we saw. One, we looked at how this promise that Jesus comes and gives us full life, um, the full life doesn't mean the easy life. So we looked at that, that difference there between the full life and the easy life. We notice as well in John 10.10 10, that the full life is not the only option because in John 10.10 10, there is a thief. And the thief that's mentioned is actively trying to steal that which the shepherd gives. And we recognize that there is a thief at work in our lives that is actively trying to steal from us the life that God wants to give to you. And uh, we noticed how this thief is so subtle that sometimes you don't even know he's stolen from you until after the fact uh, because he's just, he's so subtle in his, in his thieving. And so there's a thief. And the third thing we noticed was just simply this, that Jesus says, I am the gate to this life. Not I was, not I will be, I am today. That there is a full, overflowing, abundant kind of life that is available to followers of Jesus. We find it in him. A life of meaning and purpose, a life of joy and satisfaction, a life of peace and forgiveness and love. This is what we find in him. And so I, I wanted to go through that because this week's I am, this week's promise is built right off of that one. And we're gonna re start reading in the, right where this leads off as well. So John 10, 10, this great promise. And it leads us right to John 10, verse 11. And we're going to read the next eight verses here. And uh, here's what Jesus says next. Here's the very next promise. John 10, 11, he says, I am, ego of me, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, hey, I am, he says, the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. One more time, verse 14. I am, ego me, I am, I am, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as, my, just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. He's talking about Gentiles here, those who will, who will make up a church, not just of, of Jewish people, but of, of everybody because Jesus is for everybody. He goes on and says, I must bring them also. 
They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd just as there's one church. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. I am, ego me, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Now, we could talk about how Jesus is the good shepherd, about how he leads us and guides us. We could talk about shepherding practices, but really there's a bigger picture here that we need to, to understand and to grasp. And, and really the bigger picture is this. There is an, an overriding one reason. There is one overriding reason why Jesus is the good shepherd. There is one overriding reason why the shepherd is called good. We read this one big reason for why the shepherd is good. We read it five times in eight verses. Did you catch what it was? Five times in eight verses. The reason why the shepherd is called good is this, quote, I lay down my life. This is the reason Jesus gives for why the shepherd is good. And I, I want to pull this out. And I know this is obvious and it sounds redundant. I'm trying to say this a whole bunch of times so it really sticks in your mind. I want you to remember this, that the reason the shepherd is good is that he lays down his life. And I want to say this because um, this is such a foundational truth that if you miss this, you will end up in dangerous territory for a lot of people, when they miss this, they end up with a crisis of faith that, that will lead them away from the Lord altogether. There, there is a, a danger in, in, in forgetting the reason why the shepherd is good, which is that he lays down his life for us. The reason. And because what happens, there's a temptation that for, for us that there's a temptation that we begin to think that the shepherd is good for other reasons than just this. And we begin to look at other things that the shepherd does and think that that's the reason why the shepherd is good. So to explain this, um, we, we start to think about different, different things that, that might come into to play. And we might start to think that the shepherd is good because the shepherd answers our prayers or the shepherd provides for us or the shepherd uh, makes things happen in our life that are good. And we start to look at the circumstances of our life that are good. And, and this becomes why we start to think that the shepherd is good. And there's a, there's a danger to that that can lead to a crisis of faith. So let me, let me explain this danger and this crisis of faith. And to you, do this, to set this up, I'm gonna use a metaphor that I self-acknowledge is a really bad metaphor, okay? You don't need to email me tomorrow and tell me that this was a bad metaphor. I'm perfectly aware that this is a bad metaphor, but I like the metaphor, so I'm gonna use it. And I have the microphone, so therefore, I'm, I'm gonna go with this. Um, so to set this up, think back to the 90s. And this is why this is a bad metaphor, is because there's some of us who weren't alive in the 90s and we don't remember this, but stay with me. So think back to the 90s. And in the 90s, like the mid-90s, you may, you may remember this, some of you certainly will, others of you have no memory of this whatsoever, but in the mid-90s, NBC owned Thursday night TV. Do you remember this? Do you remember how in the mid-90s, there was a block of TV that came on Thursday nights where it was Friends Seinfeld, Frasier, and ER all together. Like, that's incredible TV. And so for anyone who's old enough to remember this, do you remember the marketing slogan for Thursday night TV in the 90s? Corey, do you know it? I see you whisper over there. Must see TV. Do you remember this? Did you get it right? All right, must see TV. Yeah, must see TV was what they said. And what that really meant was, you must be home in order to watch TV because if you're not home, you're not going to be able to see what happened because unless you set your VCR to record it, 
you're, you're going to have no idea what happened on the last friends and what Joey and Rachel and all that stuff happened there because you, just, you, won't, you won't know. You had, to, you had to be home for that. Now, flash forward to today. I have no idea what is on live TV on Thursdays, except for a certain part of the year, I know there's Thursday night football. Like, that's the, all I know about live TV, in the, like, on Thursday nights. And the reason for this is because in my house, I don't know how it's in your house, but in my house, um, all of our TV comes from Netflix, HBO Go, uh, Amazon Prime, Disney, Disney Plus, like, that, those kinds of things. Unless it's live sports, we watch what we want to watch, when we want to watch it, how we want to watch it. We call this kind of TV, we call it on demand, right? We, we want to watch what we want to watch, when we want to watch it, how we want to watch it, what device we want to watch it on. And it's not just TV, like this is how the world works now. I remember when Amazon Prime came out, and again, there are some of you who don't remember a life before Amazon Prime. It makes me feel so old to say that. But I remember when Amazon Prime came out, and I thought to myself, two-day shipping is like a miracle from heaven. Like it's manna come down for the Lord's providence for us. And now in most cities, it's two-hour shipping. Like, it's, it's amazing how this works. And so this is how the world works. You get what you want, when you want it, how you want it. It's on demand. Everything's on demand, whether it's TV, music, movies, shopping. You get what you want, when you want it, how you want it. And in my work as a pastor, what I've noticed is that a lot of people approach faith in the same way. That we expect God to do what we want, when we want it, how we want it. We have a kind of on-demand kind of faith where we expect God to come through for us in these kinds of ways. And so we begin to look at the circumstances of our life. Has God done what I want God to do, when I want God to do it, how I want God to do it, as the criteria for the goodness of God? God is good, therefore, when the, when the circumstances around my life are good. And this is how we look at this, because God has done what I want Him to do, when I want Him to do it, how I want Him to do it which I guess is a fine approach to faith until God doesn't do what you want him to do when you want him to do it, how you want him to do it. And when that starts to take place, you end up with a crisis. Because when God doesn't answer your prayers in the time that you want him to, in the way that you want him to, you begin to start to wonder, is God good to begin with? A crisis of faith begins to develop that can be incredibly dangerous and damaging to our hearts and our souls and our, and our life and our, our relationship with the Lord. I mean, and this crisis of faith, it, it, it's profoundly personal and happens to us in, in profoundly personal ways. I mean, think, for instance, about the teenager who's praying for his parents because his parents are, are fighting a lot. And now they're sleeping in separate bedrooms. And the teenager is praying that his parents' marriage will be saved and they won't get divorced and they get divorced. And he's left wondering, God, why didn't you come through for us? Why didn't you answer my prayer? Are you not good? Or think about the, the mom who's praying for her son who's making destructive choices. And he, he keeps making self-destructive choices and she keeps pleading with the Lord for, for the Lord to capture his heart, to get his attention, to build new relationships with help, healthy people. And she's just, this poor mom is pleading with God for her son to make good choices with his life. And he just keeps making the same destructive choices and it keeps getting worse. And she's left wondering, God, why don't you come through for us? Are, are you not good? Or think about the husband who's praying for his wife who's got the diagnosis and her health just continues to decline and she watches the decline, he watches the decline by her bedside as it gets worse and worse and worse and he's pleading with the Lord for, for him to heal her and he's left wondering, God, why aren't you answering these prayers? Are you not good? You see, when we have an on-demand kind of faith, we're, we're left with these questions because why did God not do what I wanted him to do? 
when I wanted him to do it, how I wanted him to do it. And if the basis of God being good and the goodness of the Lord is based on how God moves in my life and what the circumstances of my life look like, we are left very quickly with a crisis of faith that can lead us away from faith altogether because we're left wondering, well, maybe God isn't powerful or maybe God isn't loving or maybe God isn't even there. Maybe God isn't good after all and, 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 this, and this doesn't actually work. And so this morning, I want to share with you maybe a different perspective, uh, a, a different approach to this. And so we're going to go to a different place in the Bible, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to share with you a, a brief reflection of somebody who doesn't have their prayers answered and the conclusion that they make when their prayers aren't answered. And so this is written by the Apostle Paul, and he's reflecting on a time that he has prayed and asked God to do something, and God doesn't do it. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to start reading in verse 2. Uh, we're going to read several verses here, but here's how it goes. Paul writes this. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now, just as an aside, we have no idea what he's talking about here. No clue what the third heaven is. No commentator has any real idea what the third heaven is, what he's describing, whether this is like a real thing that happened to him or a vision that happened to him. No idea what this is. But here's what we know so far. Like, we know that the man he's referring to is him. He's talking about himself. I know a man, <clears throat> it's me, who was caught up in Christ. Yeah, that's what he's talking about, 14 years ago, was caught up in the third heaven. He goes on and says, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. There's just this powerful, profound experience. And then for the next several verses, he's going to explain what this was like. But then he has this really interesting thing he says in verse 7. So skip down a few verses. And he says this. He says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, in order to keep me from, you know, in order to keep me humble, he says, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, we don't know what the thorn in the flesh is. He never explains this anywhere else. There's some theories about what it is, but you can capture how bad it is. He talks about tormenting. He talks about how it's a messenger of Satan. This must be a terrible thing that he's dealing with. Again, we don't know what it is. There's some theories out there about what this might be, which are interesting, but, but we don't know what it is. Some of the theories, if you're, if you're curious, um, one of the leading theories is that maybe there's a physical problem that Paul's suffering through and that uh, maybe when he's talking about a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment him, he's talking about some physical disease or sickness he has. There's some evidence in his writing that he struggles with his eyesight, and so maybe he's talking about being blind, um, and, and so maybe that's what it is. It'd be hard to travel the world as a blind man. That's one theory. Uh, another theory is that maybe he's describing temptation and that there's some sort of temptation that keeps plaguing him and he's asking God to deliver him. And you can think about his life and his choice of celibacy. Maybe there's a temptation there. Uh, a third option is that maybe there's some sort of emotional problem. Maybe he's lonely, depressed. You think about how Paul traveled the world oftentimes um, in small groups or by himself and rarely did things go well. So maybe that takes a toll on you after a while. I, I have no idea what the thorn in the flesh is, but you can capture that it's something bad. It's something that's tormenting him. It's something that is, is plaguing him. He needs relief. And so here's what he does about it. Verse eight, he says, three times I pleaded. Hear that word. I pleaded with the Lord. I didn't like casually pray about it. I didn't just, you know, have a prayer request at church. I, I pleaded with the Lord. I, when's the last time you pleaded with God for something? So three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But here's what the Lord said back, verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient, is, is enough for you. My grace is sufficient for you. 
For my power is made perfect in weakness. In our trouble, in our thorns in the flesh, in our, in our defeats, this is where God's power is made uh, most known. This is, this is what he's saying here. So Paul concludes, he says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. And maybe this is the thorn in the flesh, I don't know, hard things. For then he says this, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So I want you to notice something about this passage, and there's so much we could unpack about this. Maybe we could spend weeks in that passage, but I want you to notice one detail. After Paul pleads with the Lord, the thorn, whatever the thorn is, is still there. There's no relief from it. God doesn't appear to answer his prayer in the way that he needs him to, in the timing he needs him to. It just appears that, that the Lord just says, whatever you need, my grace is sufficient for you. Whatever you're, you're struggling with, I'm not going to change the circumstances of that, but, but I have enough for you. And so, and so Paul, hearing and seeing that his prayer is not answered, you, you have to wonder, what, what does Paul conclude? Does he conclude, therefore, that because God doesn't answer his prayer in the way that he needs him to, in the timing he needs him to, how he needs him to, that, that perhaps that means that God is not existing, that, that God doesn't care about him, that God is not loving? Does it mean that God uh, doesn't actually come through for him? Does it mean that God um, isn't good? No, of course not. That's not what Paul concludes. Paul concludes that, that what Jesus offers him, whatever Jesus offers him, that that in and of itself is enough. And so Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The sole reason, the overriding reason why Jesus is the good shepherd is very simply this, that he lays down his life for you. And so I want to say this next part very clearly and bluntly, and I want you to hear this, and especially anyone here who might have a thorn in their flesh, whatever that might look like for you, uh, a relationship, a worry, questions, doubts, uh, anyone who's got health problems, anyone who's got a thorn in their flesh that they are, they are occupied by, preoccupied by, I just I want you to hear this. The reason why the shepherd is good has nothing to do with how he answers our prayers, when he answers our prayers, how he answers our prayers, but is very simply because he has already laid down his life. The proof of God's love for you, concern for you, and his goodness towards you is not how does he answer our prayers. The proof of God's love for you, his power for you, his goodness for you is very simply the cross. It's already been proven. His goodness has already been established. We don't have to wonder about it. We don't have to question it. We don't have to keep dwelling on it. It's already established. Now, if we're going to judge his goodness based on, has he done this in the way I want him to, when I want him to, how I want him to, then we're going to be led into a crisis of faith. But if we can sit back and relax and understand the goodness of God has already been proven through the work of the cross, and this is where we find peace. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The proof of his goodness is already established. The proof of his love is already seen. The evidence that he is good has already, ha we already have it because we have seen that he has been the gift that has been given for us. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And I want you to notice, he doesn't say, I was the good shepherd for them long ago, way back then. He also doesn't say, I will be the good shepherd for you when you die and go to heaven, or, or I will be the good shepherd for you when you get your life together and you deserve what I is I have for you. No, he just simply says this, I am the good shepherd, present tense. He is the good shepherd for you today. 
because he has given his life for you already. And what this means for us is that it does not matter what it is that we face. It does not matter what the circumstances might look like. It doesn't matter if God has answered our prayers in the way that we want him to. What it means is that we can take every aspect of our life and we can trust him. He's already proven that he's trustworthy. His goodness, his love, and his power have already been established. When we look at the cross, we see the evidence, the proof of God's love given for you. I am, he says, the good shepherd. You've just listened to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening.